I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in a year. Trends, debuts, world-altering events, and pop culture and film is there to reflect it all back to us generations down the line. Welcome to the A Year in Film podcast, presented by Hollywood Suite. I'm your host, Becky Shrimpton, and today I'm joined by film and content specialist Cam Maitland and curator and film historian Alicia Fletcher. This season has been a lot about rebels. From nuns to biddies to punks to mobsters, we've loved looking at Hellraisers. And in the 70s and 80s, there was a trio of UK actors just as known for their substance-fueled antics as their powerful performances. We've already discussed Oliver Reed in detail. I'm sure we're going to get around to Richard Burton at some point. But today, we'll focus on Lawrence of Arabia himself, Peter O'Toole. How much of an alcohol-abusing womanizer he actually was and how much was his own mythology is currently up for debate, but what you can't debate is how strong an actor he was. Cam, do you have a favorite O'Toole performance? Uh, yeah, I don't think I'm very <laughs> like that interesting. I think <laughs> the thing is his best performances are, are the big ones usually. I think Lion in Winter is one that I, I really personally like. I'm not a huge Lawrence of Arabia guy, but just because I, I don't think I've seen like I haven't seen it on the big screen, you know, whatever. Well, it's then epic, you right? haven't yeah, seen it, <laughs> is what I would say. Go back to and selling tickets to Tim. I'd say if you haven't seen 70 millimeter, yeah, then yeah, you yeah. haven't exactly. seen it even then. Uh, so, yeah, anyway. Uh, I, so, yeah, that's why it's like King Ralph. I think he's good in anything. We have him on Phantoms on Hollywood Suite at the moment. I think he's quite funny. Well, the one that I would point out that maybe people don't know, I really like the ruling class where he's yeah, like I was a, just gonna say I was just going to talk about that one. Yeah. yeah. It, it kind of comes in and out of circulation, so I think it's a little less known. But it, he's good at anything. I mean, the other one that I think is maybe sad, question mark. He's really great in Ratatouille as the voice of the critic. Yeah. What a nice yeah. late Antonio. role. Yeah. He's very disturbing in um, future film on the podcast, Kingdom of Heaven, as mm-hmm. the like decaying, yeah, like... I assume he has the bubonic plague <laughs> man whose face is falling apart. Oh. That. I think I, I'm not just picture. This is not a nightmare. I've never seen. Happen, right? No, I've never seen Kingdom of Heaven. I haven't seen it yet. So we'll, we'll you know what? We're <laughs> going to put a pin in this one and we're going to come back to it Sorry. later. Yeah. But it's all good. But he's another one of those actors who like, I mean, yes, he's an incredible actor, but I feel like his tabloidness is what kind of kept him going and why people would come to see him. Um, And some of my favorite stories that he has. Now, this is there was a big um, biography put out with like a ton of his antics and like it really highlighted what, you know, some of the terrible things he he did Mm -hmm. were, especially when it came to women. But there's also a new one coming out that supposedly says he invented most of those stories. He just liked people to think that that's the way he was. And I think the truth (laughs) falls somewhere in the middle yeah the way he's like i'm not an alcoholic is like sir i don't think you understand the concept of a high functioning alcoholic (laughs) because it's like i can tell you the the interesting thing we're talking about him in 1980 and i think in 1980 is also when he really realizes that like peter o'toole can play peter o'toole you know and some of his great roles are that like some of these oscar nominations we're going to talk about are that but like at the same time he was not really in a ton of 70s movies partially because he 
had stomach cancer that went on for way too long because they just thought it was cirrhosis they just thought he was such an alcoholic that they didn't realize he had cancer so like he had to have his in 76 he had his pancreas and a large part of his stomach removed and then he which he gave him he had had to get diabetes because he lost so many (laughs) guts and then he also in 78 had a like severe blood disorder due to alcoholism so like 80 is really him coming back to being healthy enough to work like he took like four years off to recover um so like whether or not (laughs) what he did was fueled by the drinking like the drinking severely affected his life at this point in his career I just think it's so interesting, some of the stuff he would do. Like, he got kicked out of Italy because he was with a woman there who was an Italian starlet. I don't remember who. I'm sorry. Um, And he, the paparazzi was getting really, like, pushy with them. So he punched the one of the paparazzi in the face and broke his camera, like you (laughs) do. Um, And then, exactly. And then he was arrested and they kind of released him to his own uh, reconnaissance. Recognizance, yeah. That's the one, recognizance. So that he would be, uh, but they said, don't leave because you're going to end up in prison here but we're, we're watching you so he sent his stunt double to check out while he escaped on like a train to the next like country over and then disappeared and then tried to get Richard Burton and um, Elizabeth Taylor and like a bunch of other big name actors to boycott filming in Italy so that because oh, they're like geez. they did this to me like it's it's fascinating but my favorite story I think is that he apparently had a long term on and off affair with Elizabeth Taylor and at one point he got into a huge drunken argument with Richard Burton on who was the better actor and then he and then it finally culminated with I have been boffing your wife for years why don't we ask her it's just like wow so yeah just like again I think like his performances are really powerful and they're very riveting and like he's got those blue eyes that like it's like Paul Newman or Frank Sinatra like you can't kind of look away from them they're magnetic he's just so he brings so much of that like threat of uh, mania and violence to his role that like you don't sure. it's an unpredictability yeah. that you, that that's I think what makes him compelling to watch yeah and I and I think the interesting thing is like, like I say with the like high functioning alcoholism you never really hear about him being too much of a terror on set like he always completed his movie it was like you know how Dennis Hopper was being nominated for Oscars <laughs> in the depths of his addiction like I think that there's something to be said for that that you can be or there, you hear about all these actors, like we say, especially in this era. Who do we man. still have actors like this, though? Oh yeah, are you asking if we still have actors who are addicts? Yeah, <laughs> no, but like who have those sort of antics, but are still functioning on the level where they're being nominated for Oscars and are able to well, work at this level. Well, I think you know the Disneyfication. Yeah. You kind of hide the antics a bit more, but. Well, but it's harder to hide those antics with social media and with paparazzi. I mean, we've always had paparazzi, but with, you know, people taking cell phone videos of Nicolas Cage, hate to bring him up, in a, what was it, a buffet last week? I can't remember what (laughs) what he got kicked out of without shoes on, but um, it wasn't good. Kiefer Sutherland, I mean, God bless him. I think he's sober now, but when he jumped on that Christmas tree, it was pretty great. Yeah. That's right. When he was a pirate. Yeah. And And again, he never stopped working. No, no, no. And he works at, a, and again, he also works at a fairly high level. Yeah, so, yeah, Cam, I for totally sure. agree with that. And I yes. think yeah. it's yes. part of his mystique. I think that Kiefer yeah. Sutherland's a bit of a bad boy is part of his deal. 
I do have to say that the one, my social anxiety disorder, whenever I go to industry parties, the only way I'm able to get through them is I tell myself, as long as I don't throw up on Kiefer Sutherland, I am okay. (laughs) So if I ever go to a party where Kiefer Sutherland is actually in attendance, I have to leave immediately. But again, if any gentleman would probably be understanding of being barfed on a little, it's probably Mr. (laughs) Sutherland. Kiefer Sutherland. All right. Well, let's get into our first movie of the day. Uh, So although O'Toole never won an Oscar, not even a final farewell for the movie Venus when he was 71, he was nominated eight times, including for our first movie today, where he gives a performance Ebert described as so very arch and fey that we realize no one like this could really exist except possibly in real life. Now, The Stuntman was released in 1980, but it's a movie that feels like it has its roots in a similar time as many of the movies critical of Hollywood in the mid to late 70s. And there's a reason for that. Cam, how tall was King Kong? I mean, I, I I don't understand that statement, but I love it in the film. Uh, <laughs> Three foot six. Good, uh, Thank you, you Alicia. That's what I was waiting for. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, that's good to know. It's actually bigger than you would assume. Um, <laughs> yeah, this this movie is interesting because, yeah, it was developed through most of the 70s. The director, Richard Rush, had, had his big hit in 1970 even and this was kind of his like he had freebie and the bean in between but he he was working towards this film the entire time it was meant to be his follow-up so it's interesting that it takes this long to come out the stuntman is a, a very weird movie richard Real rush weird. is a weird weird director really loves kind of mixed tones in a way that that's part of why the, this took so long to make is it has no real set tone it's like a thriller that's a comedy that's a romance um it's about this guy uh cameron is all you ever get the name of him played by steve railsback who is on the run from the law for unknown reasons at the start of the film and uh he accidentally stumbles into a stunt shot of a movie and his intervention potentially or potentially not kills the stuntman and then when the police kind of converge on this set eventually um peter o'toole who's the director of the film who has seen this accident and filmed it um decides to lie to the police and say that he is the stuntman that that oh no the stuntman survived it's fine here he is Bert. Uh, yes <laughs> so so now <laughs> <His name> is <laughs> this guy cameron who ha- has no real experience in any film industry or stunts or anything he's an old uh, soldier from vietnam um which he reminds you repeatedly which he reminds of, you of yes. and he seems like uh, that war broke him mentally uh that is correct. thrown into the world of reality and illusions that is cinema and uh <laughs> peter o'toole as he like crossed this director is essentially constantly manipulating him sometimes for positive ways sometimes for negative ways as he like tries to get different performances and stunts out of him throughout the film and that's kind of what it is eli cross really wants to know the crime he committed which is is part of his motivation but he also is motivated to try to make the best anti-war film ever which is kind of yeah and in the middle of all this is barbara hershey too who he's is the star of the film and he's falling in love with i know peter o'toole based his performance um of eli cross the director and this is like it's so theatrical, but he based on David Lean, mm-hmm. which I really love to come back to Lawrence of Arabia, of course, the director of Lawrence of Arabia and other 
similar masterpieces. And I just love knowing that, that, you know, there's these great sequences where O'Toole's character is on one of those chairs that's on a crane. And he's <laughs> yes, just like the crane chair. <laughs> zipping around like he's Willy Wonka. And yeah. <laughs> knowing that that's, you know, wearing a long scarf, which David Lean always did, I believe. Um, maybe that's not true. I might be picturing T.H. Lawrence. I'm not sure. But um, <laughs> I just love those scenes of him. Like you, they, the characters will think they have privacy and then he just zips yeah. in on a crane chair. <laughs> and is like, with a megaphone. <laughs> You would see that thing a mile away. You would hear it. Yeah. Because it's not like its own little gyrocopter. No, you know what I mean? It, it, but they make it so yes. quiet and great in that regard. Yeah, it's effective. It's, uh, yeah, I yes. mean, it's not plausible, but it's actually quite effective that he, as director, as the person, mm-hmm. you know, in a, in a tourist world, I feel like I, it sounds like I said a tourist world, yeah. but I said a tourist <laughs> <laughs> That the director is the center of everything and no one else on a set matters. Like, they're really, really going for that. And the idea of this, you know, Richard Rush, the director of this film, making up this meta film about a very famous star as a director playing another famous real life director like there's so many different layers mm. and then you add in the fact that there's a lot of actors in this who are real stuntmen and i don't know becky did you notice whitey in it i saw Convoy? whitey okay. did i ever yeah 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 Talked no about it's him uh... a long time ago yeah there's a lot of like just little shots of people who were real industry stunt people yeah. some of the most famous stunt people in hollywood and they get to kind of have a nice moment where they're in front of the camera and meant to be seen in front of the camera and meant to be themselves and not a double for a, di- a different performer. I thought I might have seen Dar Robinson for a second, but I looked it up mm. and he's I not in this know. either. Okay. And we're going to talk about Dar Robinson at some point <laughs> in the podcast because I love him. But yeah, it's <laughs> or a, he might be in it, but not credited. Yeah, exactly. That's Possibly. that's also the weird thing. And I mean, it's an interesting when I we talk about Richard Rush and like what drew him to this. This is based on a novel by Paul Brodeur and it was given to him and he kind of doesn't love the novel. And I actually have had a tough time figuring out the plot of the novel. Cause I don't know how much it has to do with the final film, but all Richard Rush cared about was that idea of like, this is a weird mishmash of reality and illusions. And I can get as meta as I want with that. And that's what drew him to kind of like redoing the script in his mind. And he also like, he makes no bones about that. The director character is also like his dream of a director. Like, of course your dream is to manipulate people into the best performance ever. You just ethically can't do it. But he did do it a few times, which I love. You hear about Peter O'Toole says some of those helicopter scenes, he was purposefully screwing with O'Toole. And I think one of the times where Peter O'Toole scoops up Steve Railsback they didn't tell him how it was going to happen. They just had Peter O'Toole. They figured out they could come oh, up behind him with the, in the, with the in crane. The, yeah, one of the scoop yeah, ups. Yeah, aforementioned chair. And yes, they, and just yeah, dr- drags him, him into the sky. And one of those scoop ups, <laughs> they did not tell Steve Grailsback that's what's happening. Peter O'Toole just <laughs> literally scooped him up into the sky. So sometimes he did do uh, crazy Eli Cross moves, which is kind of fascinating. You don't really trust me, do you? Come here to me. You constantly amaze me. You don't go to movies. What are you, a communist? I think my favorite thing is that he referred to it as Richard testing his pucker, which <laughs> held but only just. Oh, my God. <laughs> I'm like, oh, Yes, boy. yes. Uh, I don't know. I really loved the opening for this film. And I, I can't remember which film critic it was. It might have actually been Pauline Kael, who described it as like a Rube Goldberg-esque opening credit sequence. Yes. And it goes on and on and on. And it's just almost like Pee Wee Herman's uh, Big Adventure, mm-hmm. Pee Wee's Big adventure sorry where you with the breakfast making machine that's happening on a much larger scale with this film that's trying to capture all these stunts where like a bird will drop an egg and the egg will fall in someone's pocket and then that person starts walking and that person encounters a rake and then the rake sets off it's like a domino effect and i I mean you know i didn't love this film i think that 
I find it very interesting. I'm really glad we're talking about it because it's undervalued. I didn't love it, but I will say I loved that opening and sequence. It, like to me, if I was curating a collection of best opening sequences in cinema, it, this would. That's be apparently there. Richard Rush also says that's his like signature. He says all his major movies because hmm. I mean he's a guy who mostly did exploitation movies and like weird cheap movies and i think he thought that was just a, he's like i like a yeah. fun way to set up the scene of like this is kind of the tone of the movie in a bunch of unrelated little vignettes i know he did freebie and mm -hmm. the bean before this and i've been kind of dying to see that cam you and i've talked about this have you seen yes freebie and the bean? i have it's it's brutal right like it's really no it's, it's good it's yeah it's a okay. little 70s definitely some of it hasn't Retracted. aged that well uh but okay. it, but it like kind of invents the buddy cop genre in a lot of ways like a lot of people think mm -hmm. lethal weapon and stuff is based pretty clearly on it and so does that film have a rube goldberg i can't remember him saying that kind of fascinates me because i honestly it would it, i know would i'm this is why i'm asking because i'm like curious about that like that the tone of that is very freebie and the bean so I, I, okay. I absolutely believe if any movie has it it's freebie and the bean the interesting thing is that his other big movie getting straight is kind of like this counterculture movie that was very big like it was a movie that, like, you know, like, Francois Truffaut loved. So I'm like, does that have a weird Rube Goldberg opening? Because uh, that would be very interesting. I, and I haven't seen that one, I, I don't. Um, I don't direct films. I think our, our <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> listeners are aware of that. Uh, but if I did, I can tell you right now I would open every film with a Rube Goldberg. In fact, I would say my idea for a screenplay is one film, entirely Rube Goldberg. Mm -hmm. Not okay. just the opening sequence. Everything that happens uh, in the film is somehow that Goldberg. movie is oh, called yeah. Slacker. I mean, that, I mean, that's pretty much that's, like Baby's Day the Out, I guess. <laughs> there, there's movies like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's all true. Yeah. I didn't even think about that. Yeah, no, Slacker is yeah. like that too. Original like later oh, Slacker. True. Is yeah, I guess next, that's next, everything. Next. Yeah. yeah, anyway, it's a very interesting thing, and I think it's a real exploitation idea. And and you do see like the I mean the stunt man who is in this film as the stunt expert Charles Bale sometimes Chuck Bale is his actual stunt coordinator since the start of his exploitation days. So you know stuff like that is also just like, these are the things these guys come up with because they've worked together this whole time. And I think he actually, he, if I'm remembering correctly, he also worked a lot with Laszlo Kovac and oh, like possibly, established yeah. a lot of weird camera tricks, which is kind of fascinating, like rack focusing and stuff they worked on together in 35 millimeter. So it's like this fascinating thing where this guy had a bunch of tricks that w was really what made his career is these kind of like, and, and that's, I think what this movie is, why it's memorable is there's all these weird, I mean, number one, crazy stunts throughout number two, weird kind of touches that you would usually find in an exploitation film. I think yeah. you mentioned that this has a very strange tonal shift thing happening all over the place. And uh, I was with you with that as I was watching this. I'm like, what is that? Like, how <laughs> yeah. am I supposed to feel about any of these characters? Because I'm laughing at them, but now I'm horrified by the behavior. But now, like, what is going on? And apparently audiences had the same issue. And Rush was, like, trying to rewrite things because he was like, People are laughing in places they aren't mm -hmm. laughing, and I thought, or they they weren't supposed to be laughing, and I thought this part was dramatic, but people are laughing. What is this? So it almost feels like he himself didn't totally know what the tone was. If I may, and I don't like to blame people, <laughs> but the lead actor, the stuntman, is terrible. He's interesting, yeah. And I think a lot of the laughter is because sometimes what he's conveying as an emotion in this film doesn't match what's actually in the screenplay. I'm beginning to feel like, like something Sam wrote. I'm not real. I'm some jerk American flyer from World War I who's got the 
go off a bridge and die because some goddamn script says so. I think physically he works in this film beautifully and like the the many, many um, stunt sequences that he performs in. He great. Like also I, comes off as unhinged. So I will say the unhinged he did want because yeah. he cast him because he famously played Charles Manson in Helter Skelter on TV. Yes. So, and that's sense. why he wanted him. So I think the thing that's weird is that sometimes they're putting this guy in fairly gentle situations. Like what he wanted was the maniac. That is kind of, you never know if he's going to do something bad. Yeah. I think the chemistry between him and Barbara Hershey isn't quite there. And I think, while she's an actress I really appreciate and have liked in a lot of other things. And she's okay in this. It would have been such a different film if they'd gotten someone that was more in the Hollywood glamour Mm -hmm. vein. Because she's supposed to be this glamorous kind of, you know, she does impressions of Greta Garbo, for instance, in this film. And, like, it just doesn't work with Barbara Hershey because she's so modern and she's so... um, naturalistic yeah. well when she does the reveal because again this movie is all about illusion she got, does the reveal where she goes from being this old woman into this beautiful young woman it's you can see with the makeup that she's i mean barbara Hershey's she's a beautiful woman but she's not like a glamour Absolutely. girl do you know what i mean like it's a weird it's, that, it's a transition I mean. that doesn't work yeah, right. yeah. It, it doesn't translate and so much of the importance of this film's narrative is around the fact that the director eli cross um played by peter o'toole has had a previous sexual relationship with her when she was an up and actress and that actually doesn't go in the creepy direction you think it's going to go in which I liked but um it just they have no chemistry either so then it's just like it's mm. just a, there's a lack of chemistry here but an incredible technological um prowess prowess with the props yeah. it's just the only person really mesmerizing this film is Peter well and that's why he got nominated for the Oscar although Alicia and I were discussing this is that we have a feeling this was another like toss the bone to Peter and see if he can win this one I don't know people Maybe. really love yeah, this movie yeah. it's very well reviewed here's the weird thing I am finding is that when I was going like I like to read a lot of contemporary reviews of these older mm. movies to, or like um, current reviews of these of these older movies to see if they still hold up and if they still have champions and what's so weird is people who love this movie seem to compare it to um, ordinary people and right. are very <laughs> adamant that ordinary people is bad and this is great. I mean great. it was the, in, yeah. the best picture winner that year is probably why Understandably, people Every yeah. film Every film that wins Best Picture gets that for about 20 years, right? Where we all say it's a piece of crap and it never should have won. Um, We're now back on, you know, it's been 25 years and like, thank God Titanic is a masterpiece today. Because in (laughs) 2002, it was not. But uh, yeah, I feel like any sort of ordinary people backlash, which is, I'm sorry, Pat, like absolutely misplaced. That's a masterpiece of a film. Um, But comparing it to this, and I, yeah, Cammy, right? I understand why people love this. Mm. I understand... If anyone told me that this is one of their favorite films, I'd be like, damn, that's a cool, cool choice. Like, I, yeah. I support you in your in your path. I respect um, your iconoclast journey. <laughs> yes. To your, yeah, to your stuntman glory. Um, it's just, yeah, it, there's just some, some things that I, I find distracting. Yeah. It's um, worth saying that also he got, not, like, it's not just Peter O'Toole nomination. There was also a nomination for Richard Rush yeah. and the screenplay. And it was nominated yeah, for, and, like, and Best Picture a lot of places. I think reasonably so. Mm-hmm. Like, the screenplay's really interesting. Yeah, I was saying, there's an interesting, interesting idea in here. And as Pauline Kael, who was, like, the big champion of this, that got the got the movie kind of respected critically, um, according to Peter O'Toole, he said that this re- it almost wasn't released. Like, it was a movie without a release. They just totally botched this. So it didn't yeah. do well commercially. But critics, as you mentioned, love this. Because I think there is something really cool about this idea of, like, what's happening, what's not. And you'd kind of see 
something like that with another movie we're going to be talking about later, The Game, where you don't quite know what's happening. It just keeps twisting. Yeah. But this is a cinematic version yeah, of that, and which I think could be really that's cool. That's where I do think that the weird tone works, because towards the end, essentially, both of the guys have seemed to lost their mind. And in the end, you know that essentially Peter O'Toole is being very carefully manipulative. But the fact that the other guy's lost his mind, you don't know how crazy he's going to be to Peter O'Toole, and that creates a pretty good tension. So there's there's a real like there's a real scary climax mm. to this film, and I don't want to spoil it because I think a lot of our listeners maybe haven't seen this film and will go out and watch it as they should. But I I I was freaking yeah. out. I was my heart was pounding. I was like, oh my god, please don't go here, film. Please don't go here. <laughs> and uh, I won't say if it did or not, but uh, I really found that. Impressive. And there's kind of like eight twists in that part too, where you're yes. like. Oh, they did this. Oh, is this happening? Oh, is this happening? And if anything, they don't earn the kind of like the ending where they're all like, ha ha, now we're all friends. It's like, what? But is it also kind of weird that they're treating this stunt man like he's the leading man? Like you never oh, actually yeah. get to I mean, see the leading man. That do any is actors odd. I actually like. Yeah. I was like, I did. I look away and the leading man like died. Um, <laughs> but no, I mean it's it's interesting, and I guess it's that's supposed to be that Eli sees something else in him. But yeah, I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of suspense, suspension of disbelief, as you said, because I think you said, Becky, like a lot of times it's like, where am I even looking? Like the camera is always in a weird place because you're seeing eight cameras. And, and I mean, that's apparently Chuck Bale did a lot of um, second unit work as well, which is kind of fascinating. He's like an, an actor. He was secretly stunt coordinating a bit. He's the second unit director. It's kind of wild. Well, there's this one segment that I think was my favorite part where, like, they're filming part of the film where, like, he's on top of a roof and he's being attacked. This is a World War One drama. He's on top of a roof and he's being attacked. And then, like, there's guns and then he falls down the roof and then he has to battle a bunch of people and then he falls through again and he's now, like, on top. He's in a, yeah. a brothel, and, you know, and then he has – and you're like – where is the camera in this single shot? Running, I suppose. Yeah. I don't know. I suppose so, but like the sequence itself is actually really cool that yes. it was shot. It's just the fact that you don't see the camera operators, which is kind of what I wanted to see. I want to see where the cameras yeah. are if this is I mean, a movie within a movie. Right? Yeah, I guess in the day, but I'm a nerd. maybe if you did a stunt that elaborate, you would have nine or ten cameras set up. Oh, I I'm mean, sure. They also kind of, I think, throughout imply that. Peter O'Toole has essentially godlike powers because there's even a time where he gets rushes so quickly that the guy's like, how did he get the rushes? Is it because rushes? he's flying? He literally flies in and the, out. I, the, like, the poster is him being like a little devil on the chair, you know? <laughs> so yeah, I think that there's there's kind of some weird magic realist implications almost too. I want that crane chair. That is the only way I shall be transported from here I mean, it's a, The weird thing is too, it's like that's a very specific uh, piece of equipment that is not used that much in any given film unless you were like <laughs> flying around doing establishing shots all the time it's just a fascinating time for a lot of these people i guess because peter tool is kind of having a comeback it this really predates barbara hershey we we didn't touch on it very much but she she started when she was like 16 which i did not know but throughout yeah. the 70s she was kind of a joke because she was david carradine's girlfriend and i guess they were kind of a tabloid fodder she um, also well, and then with the entity i'm sure was like not after. great for her career is that yeah. after okay all, still any Ugh. role you know for her is after and i actually think the entity did well for her career i think people like that role um it's a weird movie don't get me wrong oh but, yeah oh yeah but she acts well. But yeah, and then so <laughs> the other thing that I mean fascinated me digging into it is, uh, so she was a, a, a butt of a joke for a long time in the 1970s because she was on set and something about her acting killed a seagull 
And in tribute, <laughs> she changed her name to Barbara Seagull, and everyone made fun what? of her for like oh, horribly. Barbara and, Hirsch. And only when she uh, broke up with Carradine, who was kind of overshadowing her career, and and mounted this new comeback, she changed her name back to Hershey and uh, was taken seriously once more. Yeah, so it's this kind of weird time in her career because I never knew she yeah was like a, a teen actor essentially. Hmm. Yeah, so I mean, it's interesting, and yeah, it's a weird movie. Like you say, obviously, it's it it was barely distributed. Fox only picked it up after it won the Montreal and Dallas Film Festival. So it's like very strange. And Richard Rush, I recommend listening to. He's he's a, a very tanned man with you know, tinted sunglasses. It's just just what you want out of this movie. But because of the tone, I can see people looking at this and going, "How do we market this? Like, what yeah. is this?" And it does feel like a movie from the mid seventies. It doesn't feel yeah. like something from the nineteen eighties. We're gonna be because we're now in nineteen eighty. It's very much a transitional year. We're gonna be talking about some movies that are like, "Oh, this is an eighties movie." It yeah. has this level of camera work and this kind of style and um, sophistication of topics uh, that you don't have in 70s movies yeah. and that's what this feels like yeah and I mean that's the, the this interesting thing is part of why it lost all his stuff is he stuck to his guns with his script and people didn't mm-hmm. like it and then for a while William Castle was producing it and so it kind of just bounced around oh. outside of studios would in the theater there have been a crane chair to send from the ceiling at one point I mean, maybe. <laughs> with an actor? I don't know. By this point, oh. William Castle had produced Rosemary's Baby, so I think he was a little uh, classier. Okay. But yeah, and, and the, the interesting thing to know is like, in the end, uh, it was super beloved in Europe. And, and that's, there's, there's a that. good quote where people ask Francois Truffaut who his favorite director is, and he just goes, who directed the stunt, man? I love that movie. And, uh, yeah, I think the only other actor to really like embody and and sit on that like moving chair throne better is Kermit in the <laughs> Muppet movie. Sorry. That's the only time I've ever seen that depicted in film where he's like where he swoops in and it like tears down the set or something like that. And it ruins the whole film at the end. I think it's also telling that we haven't even mentioned that there's a cop trying to figure everything oh, out gosh, and get yeah. the, the amount of talent. Like there's just there's a bunch of plot lines that don't really matter because of the antics. It's yeah, yeah it's a it's a weird little movie. But again, I think we're all recommending it as a like watch this one at least once because it's fascinating. Mm. Yes. Beautiful. All right. So when we come back we're going to look at a movie that none of us can figure out why it wasn't an enormous hit at the time and also it's got kurt russell and boy do we love kurt russell that's coming up after the break hey i'm ryan reynolds recently i asked mint mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation they said yes And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
We've discussed Zemeckis and Gale movies twice in season one of the podcast. And if there's one thing we know for sure about their work, they love car stunts. So if you've ever wanted to watch Kurt Russell leapfrog from one to another of 250 speeding cars in the middle of the desert, boy, do I have a movie to sell you. Critic Pauline Kael called it an American tall tale movie in a pop art form. It's the movie right before the two bobs went nuclear famous with back-to-back hits for basically the remainder of the 80s and early 90s. Used cars. Let's go, Alicia. Yeah, it's uh, got a lot in common with Weekend at Bernie's, (laughs) which I had forgotten (laughs) upon third viewing. Used Cars is about uh, two rival used car dealerships that are across the highway from each other in Mesa, Arizona. One is quite well-to-do and run by an evil man played by Jack Warden, and the other one is run by um, another character played by Jack Warden because they are twin (laughs) brothers, and this other one, this other car dealership is pretty ramshackle. A lot of the bumpers are um, stuck on with bubble gum, which is a joke that doesn't quite land. I still think this film's very funny, but that joke doesn't land at all uh and it's just you know they have like just nothing but jalopies the the film um introduces our lead character kurt russell who works for the poorly uh car dealership and he's like got a drill and is running it backwards to make the odometer go down on the cars which i don't think you could ever actually have done it doesn't work no i think <laughs> that's not because a thing. when i was little I, I grew up on matilda and so mm, yes. of course danny devito's car dealership um character does that and i think it's an in homage to this film but uh no it was not possible well, my parents told me you couldn't actually do that. I could be wrong. But um, <laughs> the brother, the evil brother, wants to take over this other dealership because there's going to be a highway that's going to be built. And only he really knows it through corruption. And if he can get the land, then that means he'll have the most powerful car dealership. So he ostensibly murders his brother in a roundabout way. Um, it's very funny. Uh, he doesn't actually murder him, but they take him on a, a very haphazard uh, test drive. And they know he's a heart condition and he dies. And so Kurt Russell, knowing that they'll lose the dealership um, if it's ever found out that his boss is dead, buries him in a car and fills it in with cement and then pretends, (laughs) like it's weekend at Bernie's, that he's still alive. Uh, His daughter, the car dealership's daughter, shows up. She's been in a cult for a few years in California. Mm -hmm. And so she hasn't seen her dad. She doesn't know he's dead for most of the film. And so she's going to inherit the car lot. That's part of the story. There's a lot of hijinks. Kurt Russell falls in love with her. And at a certain point, when she has the car dealership, she does this commercial. And the rival car dealership re-edits it. So it sounds like she's saying she has a mile of cars on the dealership. Now they can then sue her for from the consumer standpoint of that she's misrepresenting uh, the dealership on television. See the... A mile of cars we have to choose from. It is wild to me that the like the high tension part of this movie is about FCC legalities yes. and uh, technicalities. Yeah. But this well, is like, like <laughs> the whole yes. thing is that the guy seems to have the consumer protection person in his pocket. Joe Flaherty, which apparently it was supposed to be John Candy, yes. but he was yeah. busy doing 1941. And as much as I want them to use SETV actors, I would like them to have given them more to do. Yeah, yes. that's fair. But at a certain point, they then have to find a way, and like you know, a mile of cars equals like 250 to 300 cars. They have to. Find find a way to get 300 cars um, within like an hour on this dealership so that she won't go to jail for perjury because she said yes that she has a mile of cars and uh, the FCC can't take the dealership away from them and give it to the evil brother who is still living. Um, There's a lot of stunts in this. There's a lot of silliness. Uh, 
to characterize the kind of character that Kurt Russell plays, he's the type of um, man who would take a date to a bowling alley because they have the best salad bar in town. <laughs> mm-hmm. It did not look mm-hmm. good, that salad bar. Um, and Garrett Graham is in this for fans of Phantom of the um, Paradise. Garrett Graham, of course, is beef in that film. He's got a really big role in this, and he doesn't have a ton of large roles, so I really enjoyed this film for that. Um, I liked this film upon first viewing, which is why we kind of thought of it for the podcast. And then I have to say... I got way more into it um, seeing it the second time. Like, I think it needs multiple viewings. Um, this will be on Hollywood Suite, so you can watch it to your heart's content on demand. Uh, it is really funny. It's full of wackiness. Not all of it lands, but what does land is pretty hilarious. And it's a real cult hit because this was a huge failure. Um, really almost ruined, I would say, Galen Zemeckis. Uh and is now kind of really up there. It has a recent restoration from Shout Factory. It's really up there with like, you know, the pinnacle of um, black comedies and, and cult status. Well, this almost ruined them at the same time as they penned the script for 1941, which was Spielberg's first year. enormous flop, right? So that two back to back was like yeah. not happening. And then Romance in the Stone had already been greenlit. And that's what just made them go. And Spielberg yes. produces this film. Um, that and is I correct. think this is the second uh, Amblin film in existence. And yeah. I think you see the Spielberg influence. It's rated R, which they had not done a rated R film before. Mm-hmm. And it's raunchy. Like there's definitely some. Because there's boobs. There's yeah, yeah. A lot of female. But also nudity. the amount Jack Warden swears was apparently very appealing to him yeah he has he had not really sworn in a film before yeah it's um it's just the same year if anything this actually came out the same summer as airplane as blues brothers like this was quite an iconic the summer of 1980 was quite an iconic uh time for comedy and i think it did really really well at a test screening and the columbia which is the um the distributor the producers they rushed it and it came out the week after airplane when airplane was going to be like number one for months and months and it just it just sank unfortunately um which is really unfortunate because we get sort of the makings of kurt russell's stardom that that comedic stardom that he's you know this is two years before the thing this is before um, and it's the first time you see him be an asshole yeah that he can be that charming yes, and dick still be charming and, and come about yeah. face and be um sort of vindicated and uh i yeah he just works well in this it's funny though because i know there was a commentary he recorded for this film quite a while ago and he's always like the best person on a on a, a bonus mm. commentary uh, on DVDs or Blu-rays. And uh, he he was like, you know what? Would have made this film a lot better if it was Bill Murray starring in it and not me. <laughs> I, <was> like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's very weird. If do you know the like, so th- this is partially based. The other producer is John Milius. Mm-hmm. And and his original idea, they were obsessed with getting George Hamilton for the role. That would have been wrong. Uh, that wouldn't have worked. But George George Hamilton turned it down. How about that? Wow. George Hamilton did not want to do this script. And and yeah, it's very weird. Like because uh, yeah, Kurt Russell, he it's it's kind of too soon. He did Elvis before, but he wasn't really doing that. And yeah, before it's like essentially the Disneyland shows on TV, and then he had this long running show called The Quest where he plays essentially like uh, he's a, a white man raised by the Cheyenne. Mm. So he kind of talks like Tonto uh, and is a very like stoic, you know, Mr. Spock type character. So it's like, this is so different. He was so recognizable as a child star. Mm-hmm. Like, I think we forget yeah. that about Kurt Russell, that through his work with Disney, he was in some really high profile um, yeah, yeah. Disney television works and then also film works. Like if you go on Disney Plus, I think some of, the, some of those are on there. Mm-hmm. And, and Peter wore tennis shoes and yeah, whatnot. And 
so yes. obviously yeah. him and he's it's just so he's he's such an interesting child actor who transitioned um in a big way like i can't think of many comparisons to him uh, yeah. I mean, Jodie Foster yeah. is kind of like one of the few Absolutely. people like that. But um, Zemeckis actually cast Russell because of his Disney history, because he was like, we wanted a Jimmy Stewart who could commit atrocities and still be like. Yeah. <laughs> and you, you also like some of it's based on his fame because he is, I think, arguably way too young for this role. He's 27. Yeah. It's kind of a little odd, but it, it works because Kurt Russell just looks the same age. kind of. So you're like, yeah, he could be 35, but it's like, no, no, he's he's still a kid. Yeah. Um, and I love yeah. that this is set in Arizona. Like, it's just it, my understanding is setting it in a real um, car dealership that operated. It was a mm-hmm. Darner Chrysler Plymouth of Mesa, which existed until 10 years ago. And uh, yeah. when Chrysler went bankrupt, it, they lost the dealership. Um, but it's it's such a it gives such an authenticity to the feel of this film because it's really set in a town that is on like the fringes and just it's not Los Angeles it's dry when they this car stunt that we're talking about so he ends up being able to buy 250 cars from his um, Mexican car dealer friend who is uh, can mm-hmm. we yes. point out this is Alfonso Arau who would go on to direct like Waterford Chocolate can winning director Alfonso yeah. Arau in yes. a comedic yeah. performance sells him 250 junker cars and then he gets the driving school uh, like high school students to drive mm-hmm. them all across the desert uh, it's a great it's, moment. It's so great. And it's really, if you think about it, it's really like Red River, um, the classic Western, uh, where there's <laughs> this very uh, complicated cattle drive that's the climax yeah. of that film with, I want to say, thousands of cows. I'm not sure how many there actually were in the 40s. But um, it really is kind of, you know, it's hearkening back to those great cattle drive films that that yeah, was like yeah. the yeah. center yeah, point. I can see what you're saying. I'm there with you're, you. Yeah. It's not too much of a stretch. Thank you. I also want to go back and say uh, if you, a uh, great thing about the fact that they were using a real dealership is you can go on YouTube and look up Kurt Russell cut a series that. of commercials for Darner Plymouth <laughs> yeah. uh, where he's like, I'm, I'm Kurt Russell. Come on, come on down to Which Darner Plymouth. he didn't Plymouth. have to do contractually. He did it <laughs> no, as... He did it for fun. Uh, out of kindness and I think that that was probably yeah. a really big deal for that car dealership. Becky, you and I were talking about this because we, we worked a it together in person for the first time in a long time while filming which is wonderful uh, humans yeah yes. humans and we we're saying that you know it's really hard to take a stance or a bet on anyone turning out to be a good person because like almost any star that you love there will be a story that mm. will come out and you'll be like well that person's ruined for yeah. me but if there was like a roulette wheel and there was like all these photos of actors and i had to like put my chip on one and it, like i was betting my whole life the only person I would bet on is Kurt Russell. I'm pretty sure. Ooh, I gotta. No! I'm sorry. No! <laughs> he, uh, listen, he just famously doesn't talk politics, which uh, I think in this day and age is a bit of a red flag. I gotta say. But I, wait a minute. There's nothing he, he said is. though. Like if. He, so he, or uh, done, no, and there's no he, stories. He, he like he will stop. He will be like, I do not talk politics. And to okay. you, that indicates he might be like a Trump supporter. Oh yeah, I think it means that you're a right wing person. Okay. For sure. Uh, well, I want Alicia's to end this podcast right now. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Listen, and I mean, maybe he's just, yeah, maybe it's just an old school thing. But, That's a possibility. Uh, uh, you know what? He's been in the industry long enough that he knows whatever he says but it's is also, probably going to He's twisted, old so. enough and his career, uh, his career is past enough that I think you should be able he to talk about He can't be it. that conservative because he's, A, not married to Goldie Hawn. They're still living in sin. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like there's, And he's best friends with Martin Short. How can he, he... he says, he doesn't just say, he says that stars who talk politics hurt the craft of acting. 
Stars who uh, say stupid believe. shit hurt the craft of acting for uh, sure. No, I mean, yeah, I don't know. So uh, okay, it's, it's Cam, a little. You're leaning me. You're leaning me. Uh, it's, it's not okay. great. It's not great. Okay. He's also been a rich guy for a long time, and uh, they all eventually turn that way. It's okay. fine. The, I, I, and again, he does. He has done nothing bad. I see nothing bad. He seems to have raised nice kids who love him. Everybody you're likes him. Just seeing some mild red flags. Well, just, yeah. I think my bet yeah. would still stand then, because like if you have nothing to like you know move my chip then i still think i would win that bet <laughs> i mean I, I just think that nowadays a uh, 70 year old saying they don't talk politics is like all right buddy That's and true. he said that, that is... th- he said that this year yeah. this year not not like <laughs> that this is yeah he, he was saying i think it may be a little and depending on the timing if he said that around black lives matter that sucks all right no no i agree now i think <laughs> that this is one of those movies where like i I laughed at a number of points. I thought the stunts were really impressive. I want to see it remade and I want certain elements to be updated because I think it's pretty well known that for large portions of their career, Gail and Zemeckis did not care about or were not good at writing female characters. Yeah. And so you don't have a building. It's wild to me that I Want to Hold Your Hand exists and is as good yeah, as it is. Yeah, I was going to say, like, except for I Want to Hold Your Hand. Exactly, which, which is, is just wild. Yeah. Um, but like in general, that tends to be the case. And yeah. this, I think, is this movie's biggest flaw. And even people who support it are like, well, this is an issue. There's also, I think, something weird. It strikes me that part of this movie was cut out because because it's not that her character isn't well developed it's that her character literally disappears for like a a whole act of the movie and like and like you don't actually get the idea she's taken it back from him like there's nothing in there it's weird like so deborah Harmon shows up as this uh daughter and she actually has a very interesting turn where there is the moment where she knows her dad is dead and it's like the same time she essentially knows her dad is dead knows these guys have covered it up gets the pretty much immediate impression i think she knows that the things are so bad between the twins that it probably is the guy's fault he killed them uh and she has to make the choice of whether she turns them in or keeps the the dealership and she chooses to lie along with these guys but yeah there's this whole interesting aspect to her character that would be that maybe she doesn't lie and she is learning to be one of these slick operators like these guys and that's where she is by the end of it but you miss that whole but chunk. that's what i want i actually yeah. wish there wasn't a romance plot line at all i wish it's just like it's her getting into bed with him but like business-wise yeah. in cahoots oh, and you I know mean, what i mean that's like the, that's what i want it to be the, any of the romance that works is because kurt russell's not try, really trying to romance her at all yeah. he's just romancing her because it's the way to get what he wants um, and that date is very funny because, yeah, he's just like he's trying to keep her away and, and not to watch the ads. And yeah. yeah, but I think anytime this movie is really succeeding, it's because there is some significantly complex uh, shoot of like hijinks. And you don't yeah. see movies with hijinks very often. And so the bit where um, uh, Garrett is going through with all of the bad luck and like mm-hmm. he's trying to he's trying to decrease his, lu- his luck so he loses uh, this bet so that Kurt Russell can win a whole bunch of money in this gambling he wants thing to so run his for team Congress. will win. Because he wants to get bribes. He needs to exactly. get a money for a bribe so he can then for the rest of his life get bribes. <laughs> this, I, I do get what some critics said that this is convoluted. Ebert said it was a little too convoluted. Oh, yes. But there's other critics like I think Pauline Kael, again, name comes up all the time mm. on the podcast, including this episode. Uh, she's the one that was like, this is a W.C. Fields like spoof. Yeah. And, it, and it is. And that's those are the elements that work for me so well. Um, 
I don't know, Becky. I think you need to like wait, sit on it for six months, and watch it again, <laughs> and go back again. Yeah. Okay, with I, a I, bottle I, of wine, I, like I did last yeah. night. <laughs> and the, I mean, the biggest thing I can't get over is when the woman's—they're uh, doing the live commercial, and the woman's dress gets yeah. torn off, and she's I mean, visibly distressed, and that part 80s. really bothers me. But is that worse I know than it is. anything it in 1980, me. like the Blues Brothers, yeah. or even like Elements of Airplane? Sure. It's, it's yeah. I know, it's and not. I am willing to forgive 30s and 40s screwball comedy. So I just got to be like, you know I what? Also, if I like the rest of the movie, we were talking about. About, uh, how egregious it is at work and I'm like that woman sh- could have done a better job covering her back <laughs> her distress kind of doesn't and, work because you know, she does nothing to cover her nudity from her nude is we then are, are taken to a living room where a family of like ostensibly 12 <laughs> yeah. children all under the age of 6 are, wa- are watching it live on TV while the dad's eyes are like bulging out of his head and the mom is screaming and it's like that's the kind of payoff I think you get in that oh, scene. Oh, and please, the kid goes, look, Dad, bare tits. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty good. <laughs> so good. I mean, yeah, the, so the interesting thing to me is, like, I agree that there's these great comic set pieces, but there's just kind of, like, too much road between them. It's a long yeah. movie. It's, it's and, and, yeah, if you compare it to Airplane, that's the problem. Is like, Airplane is just gag, 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 yeah, gag, gag, gag. And, and it's inventing that. But, yeah, there, there's something here. And, I mean, the other thing that's weird, I think... You can't really blame Gale and Zemeckis because they were very work for hire. This was very like Milius and Spielberg had an idea and they're like, yeah, we'll do it because they were kind of hurting and they didn't know they would be hurting even worse after a 1941 flop yeah. so hard. Um, yeah, but I, but the other interesting thing is apparently they did this movie partially because they were trying to make uh, Looters, a.k.a. Trespass, and nobody really wanted it at the moment. So, um, th- yeah, they, they went back to it. But, I mean, yeah, I love the broad stuff. I mean, the part where, w- w- like, David Lander and Michael McKean are in it, Lenny and Scorsese. Yes. And the, when he's like, you can do this. And he's like, if I can make this man a pacemaker. <laughs> Michael McKean has, like, a homemade pacemaker. Like, staples in his chest. Yeah, like... and it's like, that is wackier than almost anything we see in the movie. And Michael McKean looks so proud of it. Like, check <laughs> <Yeah>. it out. <laughs> and it's like an infected. I know, I know that Universal, because, of course, uh. Steven Spielberg had a very intimate relationship with Universal. Universal and Universal passed on this. They hated the script. Mm-hmm. And the only reason it really got made is um, and got made at Columbia was that the studio head of Columbia at this time was a <laughs> former cars car dealership like salesperson. Yeah. Uh, An actual used car salesman. And really liked the idea that he could maybe consult and lend an air of authenticity on selling used cars. And I'm like, that's actually magical. That is yeah. really <laughs> I don't know. And I think that the thing that like, it makes sense. Like it, I, I'm surprised anyone passed on it because it's like, if you look at the top grossing comedies of the seventies, it's like Greece is kind of the weird standout. It made a million dollars. It doesn't. It's not really a comedy, comedy, but it's still cars. <laughs> but the, but there's like the sting smoking the bandit every which way, but loose and like heaven can wait, like heaven can wait as Jack Warden. <laughs> These are all, oh, yeah, it's interesting. It's really of a piece of those movies, and half of those movies are car stunts yeah. and car racing, which is this movie. And this year, I think you get uh, Any Which Way You Can and Smoking the Bandit 2, as well as, like, yeah, it's weird. And it's also, like, this is actually a little early for R-rated comedy. Like, mm. that's more of the 80s thing. Not that there weren't a lot of adult comedies, obviously, in the 70s, but, yeah, I don't know. I'm it's weird. with you that this does feel like a precipice movie. Like, it has... Mm. I think that's also why Galen Zemeckis didn't take off until the 80s, because their sensibility wasn't there. They were slightly yeah. ahead of their time. Um, I do appreciate that, including being ahead of their time, they are using Wendy Jo Sperber yet again. Sure. Every time she shows up, she's so funny. She's one of the driving students, and she's just so distressed about how she's going to do. Mr. Gurner, did I pass, did I, Mr. Gurner? 
Yes, yes, my dear. As long as you promise to get your license in another state. She like can't oh, even God. see over the steering wheel. She's <laughs> yes, like she driving at high <laughs> speed across the desert. I mean, all of the <laughs> teens in the driving thing are so very funny. good. So funny. Out the whole team. Just about whole killing the cops. You know, even if this film was worse than I'm saying it is, it would still be worth it for that. Um, yes. That cattle drive. Yeah, car that's, stunt. Uh, that sequence is so funny. I was listening to people talk about this movie, and they're like, "It's kind of weird that it's like a super shaggy '70s movie, and then it's like a tight as a drum <laughs> action sequence." Yeah for the last act yeah but and yeah there's i think that there's there is that both ways because i also feel like this might have hit a little harder if it was more in like the jimmy carter malaise era like 1979 1978 because yeah. it's there's so much like cynicism about america um but yeah i don't know it's very weird i've i've seen people point this towards being one of the last movies to poke fun at the working man but i'm no. like it's not it's yeah, cheering it's for the working man you're on his side so yeah i don't i don't know i thought that was very unusual yeah yeah i would count them as working men they're not yeah. they're not making a <laughs> yeah, lot of money as much alleys. as they're yeah as much the as they're thing... screwing people they're screwing people for like a hundred bucks what does Zemeckis and Gail have against highway builders? Because this, who friend Roger <laughs> yeah, Rabbit, they're true. all evil highway builders. I think that was a real builders. thing in LA though, right? Like all yeah. the highways of the 60s and 70s and how many people were displaced by that. And true. Poor and I guess planning. the like, yeah, the, the ending of like that, that travel across America, that way of life yeah. is ending all those roadside people. Yeah, I don't know. It's, a, it's just a, I mean, they're they're the kings of the boomer nostalgia. So I guess it's like, it's the end of that way of life, Becky. <laughs> All right. The last thing I want to bring up before we bring this episode to a close is uh, supposedly because Spielberg was often on set to check out how things were going. And he read the first draft of the script. And apparently he was appalled at the idea that politicians could be corrupt. And he didn't like the line in there where they was said that the president lies. And apparently <laughs> he was he was asking Galen yeah. Zemeckis to take it out. I'm like, do we think he's that much of an apple pie? I mean, there's a lot of talk that like Milius and Spielberg set this up for Spielberg yeah and then Spielberg kind of couldn't crack it so yeah I mean I, I think that he always kind of knew that Gale and Zemeckis why he admired them was their anarchic sort of comedy sensibility and it's weird yeah I don't know he's he's a guy that him and comedy is a weird fit and and as much as I'm like I don't know that I always love this movie it's a hell of a lot better than 1941 and, and if you like Tops not being ripped off you don't want to watch 1941 <laughs> yeah, the bar's quite low. I don't mind Tops being ripped off I just want it to be consensual top ripping off That's my no case. one ripped yeah. off this woman's top for her she got it caught on the what's it called yeah, at the front of the true. car yes. the emblem and it's like yeah I was like the no one ornament. tackled her out of frame yeah. which would have that would have been a different uh, assault so like that's true. i'm not trying to defend these men who put yeah. this naked woman with bare tits on television <laughs> they also are like they're so they're also like um what we should say is they are making commercials by like hacking television yeah, signals pirating broadcast yeah. yeah so yeah. it's like not even like it they're like they interrupt specifically jimmy carter's presidential address like you were saying <laughs> yeah, yes. becky and then all of a sudden there's you know the whole family's watching it and there's this naked woman <laughs> <laughs> so ridiculous all right i think that's where we need to end the episode so alicia fletcher once again thank you so much for joining us thank you i would like to say that i was completely wrong about peter o'toole being in kingdom of heaven he is in oh. the other orlando bloom film that is like kingdom of heaven from the year before troy and does not have leprosy 
The person who okay. has leprosy in Kingdom of Heaven is Edward Norton. I'm unclear how I got this confused. So I would like to wow. apologize. Okay. Yeah, I mean, that's fine. You know what? They're both very long-faced, gaunty sort of people. So I'm with you. We will get to this when we cover Kingdom of Heaven later, which I will sit through. <laughs> it will be glorious. We have a great guest for that episode. You contractually though, have to sit through it. Yeah. <laughs> I do. You've already signed up. Cameron Maitland, thank you. No once problem. Again. Yeah, like I say, Darner Chrysler P- Plymouth commercial with Kurt Russell <laughs> on YouTube, and he's just he's playing his character, basically being a slick salesman trying to sell <laughs> you a car. It's very cute. He's just so charming. All right, and you can join me next week where I'll have two special guests. Will Sloan and Justin DeClue of the Important Cinema Club are back on the show, and this time we're talking about Corman and Creatures. It's alligator and humanoids from the deep. That's coming up next week. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the A Year in Film podcast from Hollywood Suite. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform. Want to email the podcast? You can do so at podcast at hollywoodsuite.ca. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Hollywood Suite. Hollywood Suite is the home of the movies that shaped the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Always uncut and always commercial-free. Hollywood Suite lets you experience movies the way they were meant to be seen on four HD channels and Hollywood Suite On Demand. Subscribe today at hollywoodsuite.ca. The A Year in Film podcast is hosted by Becky Shrimpton and produced by Becky Shrimpton, Alicia Fletcher, and Cameron Maitland and featured Cameron Maitland and Alicia Fletcher as guests. Supervising producer is Ryan Maines. Executive producers are David Kynes and Julie Kumaria. Creative consultant is Emily Gagne. Audio engineering by Andy Reid. We'll see you next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.